Well, good morning or afternoon to all of you, wherever you are. It is a wonderful day today, what it does picture, and we'll be talking about that shortly. You know, Mr. DeSimone was mentioning that the work is moving forward, and it is truly remarkable the, uh, the way that the work is going forward in so many fronts. And we're really just following what Mr. Armstrong taught and what Dr. Meredith taught uh, before me, and that is to preach the gospel to the world, to give the Ezekiel warning message, and to feed the flock. And that's what we intend to do. And it is so important that we do that job because God is going to hold us responsible, as it says there in Proverbs, the 24th chapter, uh, about verses 11 and 12. And also in verse 10, don't faint, faint in the day of adversity. Uh, so we, we want to put that uh, forward always. And we need to pray that God will help us to find ways to do this, although we know that in the end it will be Jesus Christ and God the Father that worked through us to get the job done. You know, Hollywood loves to produce blockbuster disaster films. Uh, we pay a lot of good money for that, or at least some people do. Uh, how many movies have involved volcanoes and earthquakes and asteroids and tsunamis? And let us not forget tornadoes. Uh, there have been movies involving nuclear war and what happens in the aftermath of it. Uh, we seem to love ocean disasters such as Titanic, uh, the perfect storm, and the Poseidon adventure. For those of you who are old enough to even remember those movies, it's amazing. Even uh, Titanic, which I think was the last of those three, uh, has been quite a few years since that was uh, out there. And, of course, the perfect storm and the Poseidon adventure is ancient history for most of our young people. But... We have all those things. In fact, we even have spoofs on disaster movies. I came home one evening over in England, and Mr. Meekin, uh, Jamie Meekin, who was living with us, was uh, telling me that there was the worst uh, disaster movie he'd ever seen. It was uh, Shark Mageddon, and we found out later that it's a whole series of movies about sharks, such as Shark Nado where sharks are picked up out of the ocean and thrown up into the air, crashing through the uh, windshields of the 747s flying around and all kinds of weird stuff like that. So we must love these things because we pay to see them. Now, sadly, the day is coming when virtually all these disasters, uh, with the exception of the shark movies, uh, will strike not on film, but in real life, not in isolated locations, but all over the world, and they will occur within a very short period of time, historically speaking. This Feast of Trumpets pictures that time. It pictures a lot of things, and there are different levels of meaning to it, a lot of different meanings to this period of time that we are celebrating today. Uh, we rejoice, those of us who are uh, members of God's true family who have God's Spirit dwelling in us. We rejoice at what it does picture with the seventh trumpet when it's blown and how Christ is going to return, how we are going to be resurrected or changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye. We rejoice over that because that's the best news that we could ever possibly hope for or think about or even imagine, to be born in the very family of God. What greater news is there than that? never again to suffer from aches and pains and sickness, 
fear of all those things, fear of dying, uh, never being tired, all those things that we look forward to. We rejoice over the justice that will be meted out uh, by Christ on an unrepentant world. There is going to be justice. How often do we watch our news on television and see terrible things happening, and we just wish that those individuals would be caught, those nations would be dealt with, uh, some of these rogue nations around the world that are causing trouble in their neighborhood and other places in the world. And God is going to bring justice to uh, these events. He's going to bring justice for all of us to be able to see how those who have been wicked, those who have stirred up strife in this world, those who have stirred up division in this world, they're going to be dealt with. Christ is going to deal with those situations. But the day of trumpets is also a time of awesome, fearful sights. It's a day of warfare and dark clouds and gloominess. And the title of this sermon really is... Uh, uh, the day of uh, the Lord, a day of clouds, gloominess, and sunshine. A day of clouds, gloominess, and sunshine. Because it pictures all of those things in reality. Notice over in Amos, the fifth chapter, we'll start there and just get a, a little brief overview, you might say, of what this day is about. In the fifth chapter, in verse 18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Now, none of us really desires all that's going to happen during the day of the Lord. We do look forward to that time of the resurrection, that time at the end of, the, uh, uh, of this time, the seventh trumpet. We all look forward to that. But we don't look forward to those first six trumpets at all. And even that seventh trumpet uh, with the seven last plagues that are going to be poured out on this earth uh, we don't necessarily look forward to all of the terrible things that are going to happen there because sometimes it'll be involving our relatives, our friends, people we've known. Uh, we'll be going through some of those terrible times, even the seven last plagues. But we do look forward to that time when we will be resurrected. But here in verse 18, it says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. For what good is the day of the Lord to you, or the day of the eternal to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. So you flee from one disaster only to flee into the arms of another. Or as though he went into the house, breathing a sigh of relief, leaned his hand on the wall, and a serpent bit him. It's going to be a time when you, know, you can't run. You can run, but you can't hide because God's going to deal with uh, mankind in a way that there is no escape from the disaster that's coming. Uh, is not the day of the Lord, verse 20, darkness and not light? Is it not very dark with no brightness in it? That's what this Feast of Trumpets is all about. This is what we are uh, here to be reminded of, to recognize what is coming in this world. And really, we need to take action ourselves to change ourselves, to humble ourselves before our Creator, and to grow and to change and ask for His help to change so that we don't have to suffer all those things that so many others, the rest of the world, is going to suffer at that time. During the sermon, we're going to look into the time known as the Day of the Lord because the Feast of Trumpets is about the Day of the Lord. So we're going to look into the Day of the Lord and answer six basic questions about this day. 
Now, the first question is, what is the day of the Lord spoken of in many scriptures? I'm going to start over in the book of Revelation. There are many Old Testament scriptures that talk about the day of the Lord. We're going to start here in Revelation, the first chapter. And I just want to give a very quick overview of of the first few chapters, uh, very, very quick. But it begins in chapter 1 and verse 1. It says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the revealer of these things, which God, that is God the Father, gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he went and signified it by uh, his angel to his servant John. And John was to bear witness of the word of God, the testimony of Jesus Christ, and all the things that he saw. And so John, immediately after that introduction, begins to take the message to the seven churches, that is, the servants of God. Because when you compare this with the last chapter in Revelation, uh, verse, I think it's 6 and 16, uh, we find that that the servants of God and the churches that it's referring to here in the uh, first three chapters are, are synonymous. These are the servants of God. So John immediately takes the message to the seven churches which are in Asia. And we can read through a little bit there, but then in verse 10, it shows the theme of the whole book of Revelation. It says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now, he says here, on the Lord's day, and the world would like to have us believe that the Lord's day is Sunday, and it has absolutely nothing to do with Sunday. Now, it is true that the the word Lord here is a variation of Kyrios, which is a, a term that's used for the Lord elsewhere, but it just means that he is in control of this day. And it's used a couple times in the New Testament. But it is not some figure that refers to Sunday. There's absolutely nothing here that refers to Sunday. In fact, if you look at Mark, the second chapter, and verse 28, and Matthew, the 12th chapter, I think it's verse 8, and Luke, all three places, it says that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He is not the Lord of Sunday or the first day of the week. Never mentions that at all. But this is talking about he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day or the day of the Lord. And so this is what this uh, book is really all about. And so immediately we find that the message is addressed to the, sec uh, to the, uh, two, uh, the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. It defines who the servants of God are down through time. Then the fourth chapter uh, describes God on his throne. And the fifth chapter shows that it is Jesus Christ that is the revealer. So we have the servants of God, where the message came from originally, which is God the Father. And then we have Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is the revealer of the message. And then in chapter 6, it tells us all the things that are going to happen leading up to the day of the Lord. And so we have the four horsemen. We have the uh, persecution upon the servants of God the heavenly signs, and then down in verse 16, and he said, uh, they said to the mountains and the rocks, this is Revelation 6 and verse 16, and he said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of Christ. In other words, everybody thinks, oh, Jesus is just about love. Well, he is about love, but sometimes love involves a spanking. And this is what the world is going to get. 
He says, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And then we find in the seventh chapter, before he pours out his wrath, that he's going to protect this 144,000 and the great innumerable multitude. And there's all kinds of speculation about the 144,000. And the, we, we know the great innumerable multitude come through tribulation, perhaps the 144,000 as well. I'm not going to get into that because there are so many things that we don't know. Uh, we study this. We go through it in the Council of Elders. We talk about it. But the problem is that almost every scenario you come up with, you make an assumption someplace. And if the assumption at the beginning or the middle or even later on is wrong, it takes you in a wrong direction. So God will reveal this in his time. At least uh, that's uh, I'm quite satisfied with that, that when we need to know, God will make it abundantly clear. In the meantime, we could divide ourselves over this. We could have people start their own church over the 144,000 or the great innumerable multitude or any number of things because there are all kinds of speculations about it. But is that what God wants us to do? Or does he want us to be patient until the time is right when he will reveal it uh, to us? Then the eighth chapter... It talks about these seven trumpets, seven angels that are given seven trumpets, and there's a period of silence for about a half hour. And uh, Mr. Wally Smith, in his sermon on trumpets last year, uh, mentioned a scripture that's very interesting in that relationship. But also we know that this is talking about, uh, as it were, the temple, kind of the temple uh, and heaven, and uh, when the prayers are offered up, there was a period of about a half hour when incense was offered and so forth. And so some think that that's uh, what it's referring to. But we get right down to verse 7, and we have the, the sounding of the, the trumpets there. But this is talking about the wrath of the Lamb, the time of God's great anger. Uh, it's not synonymous with the tribulation. The tribulation is Satan's wrath on mankind, but... The day of the Lord is the wrath of the Lamb. It's God or Christ's wrath upon rebellious, unrepentant human beings who just refuse to get the message. After all the things that will happen the first two and a half years uh, of that time that we refer to as the tribulation or Satan's wrath on mankind, and all the things that even lead up to that, we finally come to the time when Jesus Christ will step in and he'll deal with mankind in a way that he'll finally get our attention. So what is the day of the Lord? Well, it's a day of God's wrath, or the wrath of the Lamb, as we read there in verse 17 of Revelation, the sixth chapter. And so the remainder of the book really is about the, the day of the Lord. So we have those first six chapters leading up to it, and then we continue on. And there are some inset chapters giving some information there but we have the trumpets and we have the seven last plagues and we have all kinds of other things related to it. But that's the theme of the book that's found in Revelation 1.10. So what is the day of the Lord? I just explained. The next question is, how long does it last? How long is this day of the Lord? Well, I think we've kind of hinted at that already, but let's prove it. Let's not take it as uh, for granted. Somebody says, well, it's a year. Well, let's prove it one way or the other. The Bible shows that there is a, um, a day for a year principle. And we see that back in the book of Numbers, the 14th chapter, and verse 34. This was where they spied out the land 
for 40 days, and then they came back with a bad report. And Israel rebelled against God, not wanting to go up and do what they were, were told to do there. And so in verse 34, it says, According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely 40 years, and you shall know my rejection. So the one who became Jesus Christ was the one who was dealing with them, as we read in First Corinthians, the first chapter, specifically verse 4, but those leading up to it, verses 1 through 4. And he says that uh, as they had spied out the land for 40 days and rejected God, then they were going to suffer their guilt for a day for a year or 40 years. So that's a day for a year principle there. Over in the book of Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, Ezekiel 4, we again find this day for a year principle in verse 6. Ezekiel 4, verse 6, says, When you have completed them, lie again on your right side. Then you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty, uh, yeah, 40 days. I have laid on you a day for each year. So just breaking into a thought there, but it's the day for a year principle that we find in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always that way, but, you know, we have the seven days of creation and six of them, uh, uh, referring to a thousand years for each day of creation. But we, we find that God sometimes uses a day to explain something more than a single 24-hour period of time. Other times, it's very specific. Jesus was in the tomb for uh, a day and a night, three days and three nights for 72-hour periods. So that's very specific. But sometimes it is prophetic in nature. So how do we know? Is this all going to happen in one day, all seven trumpets? Or is it a year? Or is it a hundred years or a thousand years? How do we know? Well, let's go to Isaiah 34. Isaiah 34. And we'll look at verse 8. And it's talking about the day of the Lord in this, uh, this chapter. Notice verse 2, it says, For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. And we'll come back to the Scripture a little bit later. But notice verse 8, Isaiah 34, verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of recompense for the cause of Zion. The day of the Lord's vengeance, the year of His recompense. Uh, notice also in Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, and we'll look at verse 2. And here again, we'll see this uh, period of time. Let me start verse 1. It says, Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Eternal, uh, or the Lord, in this case, uh, God, is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, this is quoted in the, uh, uh, in the New Testament by Jesus. It says, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So it is the acceptable year of the Lord the day of his vengeance. So we see this day for a year principle. And when we look at 
the, the whole picture, it it's, makes sense that it is a period of one year of God's wrath upon rebellious, unrepentant uh, mankind that just refuses to accept God as creator. So the day of the Lord is Christ's wrath upon mankind. It lasts for one year. And upon whom does this day fall? Well, I've kind of mentioned it here, but let's notice it as it's stated a little bit differently. It says, Proclaim in the palaces at Ashdod, and in the palaces in the land of Egypt, and say, Assemble in the mountains of Samaria. See great tumults in her midst, and the oppressed within her. For they do not know to do right, says the Eternal, who store up violence and robbery in the palaces. So, there are people that really don't know how to do right. It's interesting. I was sent a, 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 an email uh, yesterday, and it, there's a new uh, movie on, on Netflix out there, and it's talking about social media. And, and I would encourage you to go back and read the article that I, I wrote on social media or the telecast. I forget exactly, but it was, it's the one with kind of a blue cover with this monster, uh, Tame the Social Media Monster. You can find it on our website very, very quickly. Um, I didn't even fully comprehend what we are now learning about the Internet. And, you know, they know everything about you. If you, if you go out there on YouTube or uh, on social media, any kind of uh, social media, through what they call AI or artificial intelligence, and that covers a lot of different things, but they know everything about you. If you scroll down and you pause just for a second or two longer over a particular article that is shown there, a lot of clickbait, of course, but if you just slow down there, that is fed into the computers and with various algorithms, they learn what you like, what you are interested in, and then what do they do? Well, first of all, they want to keep you on there as long as they possibly can because then they can advertise to you various products. They want to keep you there, but they, they do so by finding out what you are interested in. So each one of us is an individual that's stored in a bank someplace. I saw a, a program not long ago where this fellow went out and he had 31,000 pieces of information through Information Act. He was able to get this. And when he says, Alexa, turn off the lights, that's recorded. Every time they go out the door, because it's all tied in with the Internet, they know when you go, they know when you come, they know what's going on. When you have these smartphones, they are listening all the time so that you start talking about buying carpets and suddenly you start getting information about carpets on your your email and, and uh, not not email but your well uh, and, and not so much there but uh, you know on, on the internet when you go out there but they know what you're interested in so if they know that you are a uh, a climate change denier which in reality uh, it's the people who you know, are trying to say that we're destroying the climate. They're the ones that deny that climate changes. But whatever side you're on, I'll just put it that way, whatever side you're on, they know which side you're on, and what they do is they feed you more and more information there. If you are an anti-masker, they're going to feed you anti-masking stuff. If you are a masker, then they're going to feed you masking stuff. And what is happening is 
they are exaggerating what people already are. In other words, they're going to feed you more and more information. If you click a little bit on uh, flat earth, then they send you more stuff. If they know that you are a flat earther, they're going to give you so much stuff so that it reinforces and reinforces over and over again what you are leaning toward. And it's, it's, in, it's insidious. It's of the devil in reality. And, and we need to understand that they, this is creating a truly, uh, you know, your truth and my truth. It's, it's, I mean, there's only one objective truth. But in our world, you have these people over here who believe this is the truth, and these people over here who believe this is the truth, and somebody else has their version of the truth. It's not true. But in their minds, it's true. In our minds, certain things can be true because they've fed us certain things as they want to do. Not because they want to turn us all into a bunch of mind-numbed zombies, but they want to market to us. But the end effect is that this is happening. And there are people uh, you know, that have, have left uh, Silicon Valley and they're sounding the alarm on it, not just those that I gave on that program or in that article, but other individuals as well. And they don't allow their children to go to schools with computers and so forth because they know how dangerous this can be and how it can take over. And so we wonder, when we look around the world, how can the world be so stupid? How can they be so dumb? Bunch of idiots, mind-numbed idiots, it seems like out here. They're being fed that stuff. And that's what they are believing. They only hear one side of things, and they hear more and more and more of it. It shows why... When Christ returns, people are going to be so rebellious and so, so against Christ. And you can see how this is all going to come down against God's people eventually. Satan will turn this all against us. Uh, he's got, you know, he's against everybody, but he's going to turn it against the church someday. He says, um, verse 11 of uh, Amos 3, he says, <clears throat> An adversary shall be all around the land. He shall sap your strength from you, and your palaces shall be plundered. This is talking about warfare. It's not talking about the Internet here uh, as such. But verse 12, Thus says the Eternal, As a shepherd takes from the mouth of a lion two legs or a piece of an ear, uh, so shall the children of Israel be taken out who dwell in Samaria uh, in the corner of a bed, and on the edge of a couch, in other words, you can't even get comfortable. There's just a little bit left there. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, says the Lord God, the God of hosts, that in the day I punish Israel for their transgressions, I will also visit destruction on the altars of Bethel. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will destroy the winter house along with the summer house. The houses of ivory shall perish and the great houses shall have an end. Uh, in, in the fourth chapter, he, he talks here uh, about uh, verse 12. He says, Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. That's what's going to happen here. People are going to have to be prepared to meet their God. You know, I thought there's something wrong here. I'm supposed to be in Joel, not Amos. Sorry about that. Joel 3. I knew something was, was wrong there. I'm in Amos, and it should be in Joel. Uh, that's in verse 9 where it says, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords. 
It's just the opposite of what it says in Micah and Isaiah. In this case, it's take your instruments of agriculture and turn them into weapons. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come all you nations and gather together around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. And it's talking about coming up to fight against uh, God at the return. It says, let the nations, verse 12, be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down for the wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. Then verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And you can read the remainder of this, but it shows uh, that there's this time that's coming, this valley of decision. It's going to bring all the nations together. And God is going to deal with all of mankind uh, a little bit here, a little bit there, but then all at once. And we read of that over in Zechariah, the 14th chapter, and what happens and how they're defeated. And then the survivors are going to go back and say, hey, you don't want to mess with with." Uh, with this man, this this king, uh, he, he truly is God. And they're going to be commanded to come up and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, as it says there in the latter part of, of verses 16 to 19 in the book of Zechariah. So upon whom does this fall? Well, it talks about even the small nations beating their swords into plowsh plowshares into swords. Notice Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah 25. And we'll begin in verse 15. He says, For thus says the, the eternal God of Israel uh, to me, Take the wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. Now, this was something that apparently Jeremiah did to, to some degree. Uh, he, he was to go to all these nations, whether he personally went or whether he sent somebody else to do it. Uh, but this is really talking, there's duality in this passage of Scripture. And we see here that he is to take this cup, uh, and it says, And they uh, will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. That's verse 16. So he says, Then I took the cup from the, the Eternal's hand and made all, nation, all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. And then it lists all these nations. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Uh, verse 19, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, verse 20, the, the kings of the land of Uz and the Philistines and Ashkelon and Gaza and Ekron and Ashdod. Uh, verse 21, Edom, Moab and Ammon. Uh, the kings of Tyre and Sidon and Dedan, uh, Dedan and uh, Tema and Buzz. Uh, verse 23, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia, uh, verse 25, uh, Zimri and Elam and the Medes, all the kings of the north, far and near, one, after, uh, one with another, and all the kings of the world which are on the face of the earth. That's the latter part of verse 26. So what we see there is that this was a type of what's going to happen in the future, that all the nations of the earth are going to be given this cup to drink and to stagger. 
and to uh, uh, go into really warfare as we read through here. Verse 17, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. A time of great warfare. And the sound of a shofar, a uh, the, the, the ram's horn or a trumpet is a, a sound of war. And he says here that they should drink of this cup, a cup of wine, as it were, and be drunk and vomit. And it says, fall and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. And it shall be if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, thus says the eternal of hosts, you shall certainly drink. So, but countries that, that really don't even have this in mind, they're going to drink of it because God is going to deal with them in such a way that he's going to defeat their armies and uh, this is going to happen. He says, verse 29, For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city, speaking of Jerusalem and also of, of Israel in general, which is called by my name, and should you be utterly unpunished? There is no righteous nation on the face of the earth. Some of the more seemingly peaceful nations are so far into false gods, you know, some of the uh, islands of the South Pacific and, and so forth. Uh, you go over to, say, Thailand. Thailand has not been a, a great military power, but they're so steeped in, uh, you know, pagan uh, worship of, of gods, uh, of Buddha and so forth, uh, just idols and images, and it's, it's just a whole part of their culture. And he says, uh, Behold, I will begin to bring calamity on this city which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished, you shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Eternal of hosts. And notice down in verse uh, 30, the end of it, it says, Against all the inhabitants of the earth. And verse 31, a noise will come to the ends of the earth, for the Eternal has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Eternal. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, disaster, verse 32, shall, be, shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. Verse 33, and at the, that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered and so forth. Uh, and verse 37, the latter part, because of the fierce anger of the eternal. Verse 38, and because of his fierce anger. So we see that this is the time. It isn't just for Jeremiah's time. This is a time when God is going to bring his wrath upon all nations of the earth because of our sins and because of our rejection of him. So we see that the day of the Lord is a time of God's wrath. It lasts a year, and it's going to be upon all nations. Now let's just notice another point on this uh, in Obadiah. It's a, it's a passage of Scripture or a book that we almost never turn to. It's, it's a prophecy against uh, Edom, but... Uh, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, just before Jonah. It's one chapter. We're going to read verses 15 and 16. It says, For the day of the eternal upon all the nations is near. 
Now, while he speaks of Edom, that's what it's mostly about, he says here that the day of the Lord is not just on Edom, but on all the nations, uh, and it's coming near. And you have done, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. In other words, specifically Edom because of their sins. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. And yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. So they're going to drink of that cup of uh, God's wrath, whether they want to or not. So we see that it is on all nations. Let's go one more scripture on this, Isaiah 34 and verse 1. Isaiah 34 and verse 1. It says, Come nearer, you nations, to hear, and heed, you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all things that come from forth from it. For the indignation, or the wrath, of the Eternal is against all nations, and His fury against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be meted with their blood. This is not a pretty picture. But when you look at mankind, just look in the mirror at yourself. I have to do the same. Which one of us is without sin? Which one of us hasn't done many things, many things in this life that we don't regret? Now, God has forgiven us. Uh, Jesus paid the penalty. We were baptized. Our sins were washed away, and not just the water, but also the, the blood of Christ. But the washing of the water by the Word, God's Word straightens us out, changes us. But brethren, we live in a world where we're being influenced by all kinds of things, like I was mentioning there, the Internet. But when we stop and we look at our behavior, is it the behavior of Jesus Christ, or do we get caught up in this world? Do we get caught up in all the arguments and the reasonings? Do we get caught up in the rebellion of this world that nobody's going to tell me what to do? I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I marvel sometimes how we, even in the church of God, get caught up in these things. And yet I, I know when I look in the mirror that I have plenty of things to repent of as well. But that's those of us who have God's Spirit we come up short. How much more the people in this world who have really no concern for the things that we do. Now there are many people that, that you know, uh, are sincerely religious in their own way, but they don't get it. But you start taking away Christmas or Easter or something like that, and you find out these very nice people are not always so nice. I've said a number of times how we live in the nicest neighborhood I've ever been in. We just know uh, a lot of neighbors, houses all around us, and, you know, even blocks away. And they're very nice, and they're very helpful. but we should never think that when times get rough and they really find out what we believe about some things, that it's going to stay that way. I, I, I don't, you know, Christ said that. He, he didn't just, when people were uh, saying what, how wonderful he was, he knew human nature. And he didn't give himself over to that or get caught up in thinking that, oh, that everything's wonderful. He knew what human nature can do. And sometimes those who are your neighbors, those who are your friends, can turn on you. 
uh, very quickly. I hope they don't, but, you know, I think that we're naive to think that it won't happen. You step on Christmas. You step on what they believe, and that can turn very, very quickly when they find out that you don't believe as they do. They, they may accept, okay, you keep the Sabbath, you're kind of some funny religion, but it doesn't come close to home to them. So we have to, to understand that. And so God's wrath is going to be on all those nations, as he points out there. So the, the day of the Lord is Christ's wrath, God's wrath upon rebellious mankind. It lasts for a year, and it's against all the nations of the earth. But why does God exercise wrath on mankind? We've, uh, I've, I've hinted at it. I've, I've even said it here. But let's see what the scriptures say as to why this happens. Let's notice Isaiah, the second chapter. We read Isaiah 2 at the feast, usually the first nine verses or so. And, and we sometimes read the latter part uh, around this time. Uh, the Feast of Trumpets, but let's notice verse 10. He says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Eternal and the glory of His majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled and the haughtiness of man shall be bowed down and the Eternal alone shall be exalted in that day. We as human beings have exalted ourselves above God. When you go back to Adam and Eve, the rejection of God as their ruler, revealed knowledge, they, they wanted to determine for themselves right from wrong. And, and that's all of mankind. That's, that's the, the sin all of us have committed, exalting our will, our thoughts above God's thoughts. I, I, I'm reminded of when I came into the church, I was a teenager, didn't grow up in the church. My parents didn't go along with it. And uh, uh, my, my friend said, you know, maybe we shouldn't be playing baseball on the Sabbath. And uh, I, you know, I thought, okay, well, that's probably the case, but they, they depend on me on first base. And so I'll finish out the season. That was exalting my thoughts above God's thoughts. As soon as I realized that I shouldn't be doing it, I should have changed, but I didn't because that's human nature. We rationalize around it. And then once I uh, stopped playing baseball on the Sabbath, it was uh, football season, so I just laid on the couch. It's the Sabbath of the rest, so I can watch, watch football on the Sabbath. Well, I didn't know any better. I, I understand that. I, I really didn't know how to keep the Sabbath. But uh, nevertheless, we, we exalt our thoughts above God's thoughts, and we all do that in various ways. We think we know better. God says, don't murmur. Don't complain. Okay, which one of us is, is not guilty of complaining or murmuring in some way? I was watching a, uh, a documentary on the Second World War, and they were showing the prisoners of war coming out of Japan <clears throat> and what they were saying. And as one person said, they all learned one lesson. That was they would never complain about anything again. In other words, when they went through being a prisoner of war, they realized that if they, their coffee's not warm enough, uh, if 
a particular dish is not just right or whatever it is that we complain about. We, we complain about so many little tiny things. We're a bunch of murmurers and complainers. And we, you know, we, we have all those complaints. But if you go through enough time as those men went through as prisoners of war, uh, they learned a lesson there. And that's a lesson that all mankind is going to learn. Now, does that mean that everybody that came out never complained again? You know, it's human nature. We forget. It doesn't take long, and we forget those things. But as long as that memory was alive in their minds, and of course they never could really forget what they went through, but when they thought about that and they wanted to complain uh, to the waiter or the waitress because something wasn't just right, they were reminded of what it's like when you don't have all those things. So your steak is cooked a little bit too much or not enough. doesn't mean it's wrong to, to let them know if it's not cooked enough to please, you know, zap this again. But <clears throat> to, to just grumble and complain as we do as human beings over such little teeny tiny things compared to men that, you know, were eating literally rats and dogs and uh, whatever else they could get a hold of, snakes, lizards, anything they could get their hands on, because they were starving to death. This is what the world is going to see. This is what the world is going to experience during that time. Because right now, whether we like to admit or not, we're, we're haughty. We think we know better than God. And, and the person next door, who is so nice and so wonderful, knows which day is... God's day, even though they can read, they, they think it's a different day. That's exalting one's will above the will of God. For the day of the Lord of hosts, verse 12, shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. So God is going to humble mankind. Uh, let's notice down in verse 17. He says, The loftiness of man shall be bound down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The eternal alone will be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the eternal and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. Or as the King James says, when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. In that day, verse 20, a man shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold. All the things that are so important to us today are going to mean nothing at that time, which they made each for himself to worship. You're going to throw it out to the mats, uh, the mats, the moles and the bats, and they're going to go into the clefts of the rocks and into the uh, crags of the ragged rocks from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily, or to shake terribly the earth. So that's why God is going to bring this upon mankind. You might look up Isaiah, the 13th chapter. It also talks about that in verses 6 to 14. But how will God's wrath be manifested? How is it going to come down upon mankind? Well, as it says there in Joel, the first, uh, second chapter in verses 1 and 2, it's a day of clouds and gloominess. Let's notice that also in Zephaniah. Zephaniah. Haggai's, Zechariah's right before Haggai. Zephaniah, the first chapter. 
and verse 14. It says, The great day of the eternal is near. It is near and hastens quickly. The noise of the day of the Lord is bitter. There the mighty men shall cry out. So all the brave men, all the mighty men of war are going to cry out. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble and distress, a day of devastation and desolation, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and alarm. Uh, the sound of the trumpet of, of warfare and alarm against the fortified cities, against the high towers. I will bring distress upon men, and they shall walk like blind men, because they have sinned against the eternal. Their blood shall be poured out like dust, and their flesh like refuse. And it says there in verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the eternal's wrath. But the whole land or the whole earth shall be devoured. And that's really what that word land should be, is, is the whole earth shall be devoured. So we see that uh, God is, is going to bring this upon mankind. Uh, it's going to be manifested by darkness and gloominess and all the, that sort of thing. Uh, in Isaiah, the 24th chapter, uh, verses 1 to 6, it's a passage that Ellen G. White quotes in her a book, the uh, uh, what is that? Uh, uh, the Great Controversy. I think it's gone under several other names. And she quotes verses one to six. And I, I would uh, suggest you become familiar with that because it talks about the earth reeling to and fro, and the inhabitants of the earth. And it says, therefore, the inhabitants are thereof are burned. And she ends the quote right there, but it goes on to say, and few men are left. But she's saying that. For a thousand years, there's nobody alive on the earth. But she's talking about the time, really, if she understood it, of the day of the Lord and how it's going to be devastating upon the whole earth. And uh, you can, if you have that book or if someone is a Seventh-day Adventist and says, no, everybody's going to be dead, have them get the book out. She's got a wonderful scriptural index. And just look up Isaiah 24, verse 1 to 6. Get out your Bible and read the whole passage. And don't quit at the end of until you get to the end of verse 6. So that's another passage that shows how God's uh, wrath is going to be uh, come on the earth. It says the earth is violently broken. The earth is split open. The earth is shaken exceedingly. Now, back in the book of Revelation, you know, I, I started out by talking about disaster films. And uh, I guess we have our own disaster films here today. Because we're not going to show you Sharknado or Sharkmageddon. But we're going to give you a little bit of taste of the real uh, shark, uh, not shark, but the real disaster that's coming upon this earth. In Revelation, the 8th chapter, it starts blowing these trumpets. And it starts in verse 7, the actual blowing. It says, the first angel sounded and hail and fire followed mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass burned up. Now, what is going to do that? It doesn't really say. We, we, we know that that's going to happen, but how it's going to happen, exactly, we don't know. But the next verse says in verse 8, Then the second angel sounded, this is the second trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And of the third of the living creatures in the sea died. And it says a third of the ships were destroyed. 
Now, what exactly is this? Well, the uh, the Holy Days Part Three, uh, the telecast. It's also on. Um, we have all three of those plus Mr. Ames' program showing uh, the holidays of this world and what they're, what's wrong with them. We have a clip, and I'd like to show uh, several clips here from that telecast. So if we can play that uh, clip number one uh, at this time, and it'll talk about this uh, second angel sounding. Bill Brightson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, is a book about science. In it, he reveals some important facts that can help us understand this second trumpet. Yellowstone National Park in the United States sits on a large dome of molten lava a short distance under the Earth's crust. There are numerous hot springs, geysers, and mud pots found throughout. Every scientist familiar with the park is well aware that it has a volcanic origin. But for many years, no one seemed to know, or for that matter, even care, where the caldera was located. A caldera is the crater left behind after a volcanic eruption. It is most often associated with the top of a cone-shaped volcanic mountain, such as Mount Fuji in Japan. But in the case of Yellowstone, there isn't a cone, and no one knew where the crater was located. This all changed when Bob Christensen of the United States Geological Survey saw a photograph of the park from space. He immediately realized why no one recognized the caldera. It turns out that Yellowstone is a super volcano and the entirety of the park stretching 40 miles across, approximately 65 kilometers, is the caldera. It's so large that standing on the ground you don't recognize it. What scientists now know is that there have been volcanic explosions in the distant past infinitely greater than anything known in recent history. The second trumpet in the book of Revelation is likely describing such a supervolcano located near busy shipping lanes. Note it again. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships destroyed. As a point of interest, one-third of all ships pass through the highly concentrated shipping lanes of the South China Sea. And this same region hosts some of the world's largest and most explosive volcanoes. The explosion of such a supervolcano will shake the earth. But the third trumpet is equally dramatic. The third trumpet we read of here in verse 10 of Revelation 8 says, Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. So that's the third trumpet, and let's go ahead and take the clip on that. The word asteroid is Latin meaning star-like, and we often refer to meteors entering Earth's atmosphere as shooting stars. They appear like stars falling to the Earth. In recent years, scientists have learned that there are a lot of objects floating in space crossing Earth's orbit. Some of these asteroids are large enough to do massive damage if they were to impact our planet. According to Bill Bryson, 
Altogether, it is thought, though it is really only a guess, based on extrapolating from cratering rates on the moon, that some 2,000 asteroids big enough to imperil civilized existence regularly cross our orbit. But even a small asteroid the size of a house, say, could destroy a city. The number of these relative tiddlers in Earth-crossing orbits is almost certainly in the hundreds of thousands and possibly in the millions, and they are nearly impossible to track. This third trumpet seems to indicate that a large object will strike the Earth and affect about one-third of the world's freshwater supply. Could that be in the Himalayas, the headwaters for Asia's greatest rivers? The Great Lakes in Canada also contain massive amounts of fresh water. These forces are out there, <clears throat> as brought out by uh, Bill Bryson in that, that book. Uh, the timing of them is going to be what's critical, because God is going to bring these things to pass in a one-year period of time. Now, when you look at this year, 2020, how many things have happened already in this year, and we're not... You know, we're not at the day of the Lord by any means. We're not even at the tribulation yet. But we see that one disaster after another after another. And when these things begin to happen, they're going to happen very rapidly. When I say very rapidly, over a one-year period of time. And when you think about 2020, we're only into September. And look at all that's happened. It seems like this year has been, for some of us, forever. It's been a long year. And it's going to be a long year for the people living through these uh, trials during the day of the Lord. And yet, God shows that he's going to protect his people, as he did there in the seventh chapter. Uh, he, he puts a mark on their head, protects those who have uh, his, his sign, not Satan's uh, mark, but uh, the sign of God. Now, the fourth angel is found in verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. And a third of the day did not shine, and likewise a night. This might be in relationship to the things that we've just described here. That might bring about that kind of a situation, or maybe something else. We don't have to know. We just know that when these things happen, when they really happen, we'll know about it. It won't be a secret. You can't hide, uh, you know, a third of the ships being destroyed. <clears throat> And uh, all the other things. Verse 13, I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. And then we read of the fifth angel in chapter 9, verse 1. And we read of the sixth angel in chapter 9, verse 13 and those verses that follow. And you can read that on your own. But let's pick up the last clip here, which talk about the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. So we'll see that clip now. The fifth and sixth trumpets introduce a war of unimaginable proportions, involving hundreds of millions and killing one-third of mankind. It was impossible when this was written to understand the kind of futuristic weapons that are described in Revelation. But these prophecies describe such mass destruction that all life could be destroyed. This is what Jesus predicted could happen except for his return. Here it is in Matthew the 24th chapter and verse 22. Had not those days been cut short, not a soul would be saved alive. However, for the sake of the elect, 
those days will be cut short. That's from the Moffat translation. The Feast of Trumpets reveals that God will intervene to stop man's madness. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. So this is a, a quick review of what these days picture, what it's all about, what this day pictures. But we have one last question, and that is, what good can possibly come from such massive destruction and suffering that's going to be on this earth? <clears throat> In Leviticus 25 and verses 8 through 10, it describes the Jubilee, Leviticus 25 And notice verses 8 through 10. Uh, you can read more on that, but we'll just read those verses. It says, And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself. In other words, there's a seven-year cycle. And every seventh year was the release of debts. But there were seven times seven cycles of seven. <clears throat> and it says, And the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land. And verse 10, And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each return to his family. What we see there is a time when man is going to be relieved of the burden that we see on this earth today. Now, this, is, this trumpet that it describes there is not one of the seven trumpets. It's a trumpet that comes ten days later at the uh, Day of Atonement. And that trumpet's going to be blown. And what does that day picture? It pictures the removal of Satan the devil, who has stirred up these passions within mankind. And so we're looking forward to that in a few days. We're going to be celebrating that, and we'll be talking about that. But let's just notice over in Isaiah, the 27th chapter, because he describes here, Isaiah describes that trumpet, the trumpet of, of atonement. Uh, in, in verse 13, it says, So it shall be in that day that the, the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Eternal in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Talking about time when they're going to come back from captivity, a time of release. A release from captivity, not only physical captivity, but the captivity of sin. And so that's a, that's a different uh, trumpet, of course. But nevertheless, it does picture that time in the future. You could go to Isaiah 11. In fact, let's go back there real quick. Isaiah 11 and verse 11. And here it says, It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord, or, yeah, that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people who are left from Assyria, Egypt, and Pathros, and Cush, and Elam, and Shinar. In other words, God is going to bring Israel back from captivity. And then from there, the word of, of God is going to spread out into all the world as people come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles and so forth. But we, we see that time that after all this destruction, after all these things that happen, good is going to come from it. 
It's kind of like a child who's rebellious. And he finally gets a spanking that, that breaks that spirit of rebellion. And he can be so loving at that time. And there's a reconciliation between parent and child and a, a wonderful thing that happens during that. Notice Isaiah, the fourth chapter. Isaiah 4 and verse 2. It says, In that day the branch, a reference to Christ, of the, the eternal shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and appealing for those of Israel who have escaped. And it shall come to pass that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded among the living in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, when he's washed away, the sins of his people, but not just his people. There are so many scriptures that show that the whole world is involved there. Isaiah 19, uh, last scripture here, Isaiah 19. Uh, one of the, I, I think just the most beautiful passage that you could possibly read here in verse 23. It says, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. These were the two main antagonists and enemies that uh, Israel had. And he said uh, they will be one of three, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people. That was always reserved for Israel or Judah. But he says of Egypt, my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So there's going to be a reconciliation of all mankind, of, of races and of nationalities. Uh, there's going to be a peace that comes on this earth that I'll be describing during at least one of my sermons during the feast, God willing. Uh, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. That's going to be the end result of it. So while it's a day of clouds and gloominess, it also pictures a day of sunshine. The Feast of Trumpets is about these seven trumpets. And we rejoice in the sounding of the seventh trumpet because of what it pictures for you and for me. We shudder at the events that will occur on this earth during that one-year period of time. It is a day of clouds and gloominess. And while we look forward to being born into the family of God, the day of the Lord, as Amos warns, is not a day that one desires. Yet even in man's darkest moment, there is light at the end of the tunnel. There's a day of sunshine beyond. And once that spanking is finished, a glorious new age will begin. And we will learn more about that glorious new age in the days ahead of us during the Feast of Tabernacles.